Welcome back to episode three of Junto Talks. Is it episode three already? Wow, that was uh, time flies. It is me, it is Akash, it is Aiden, right back in the studio. And we have a special guest today. We brought in Oliver Wendell Braley, one of the original uh, Junto members, if you will. Yeah. Fathers. And uh, I mean, that's the reason we met, right? I think we the first time I met Adam was through the guy who's the original original Hunto. Isaac, right? Founder, yeah. Crazy times. Well, welcome to the show, Oliver. Great Thank glad you. to have you. Yeah. Nice. So what should we jump into today? So I heard, Adam, that you went to a teacher's rally. You're interested in building some tech for uh, unions. And right now there's a big teachers union strike going on in Los Angeles. Um, schools were shut down for three days, I believe, last week. So what was it like? What were they uh, protesting for? Uh, what kind of tech do you think they might need? Yeah, so my friend Kevin and I, we went to the, uh, this rally in center of Los Angeles, right in front of the um, you know, like mayor uh, government building. And it was around, it was, I think, close to like 10,000 people total. It was uh, custodians from Local 99. And it was from it was teachers from uh, UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, and they were rallying in preparation for a strike uh, um, against the school district for you know higher wages, better working conditions. Uh, it was mostly actually from Local 99, the uh, custodians that the the strike. They they were the ones that really wanted. Uh, and needed the, the benefits the most. Mm-hmm. And the teachers were there out of solidarity because they were the other half of you know, the employees at these school systems. And if everyone's striking, then it's gonna be, gonna be more effective. Mm-hmm. So Kevin and I, we went, we talked with a bunch of, uh, you know, just ordinary people who came out to this rally to, uh, in preparation for the protest. And it was really interesting hearing uh, their perspective. It was, the teachers, when we, who we talked to, they were more there out of solidarity for the custodians. But the custodians are those who really had it the most tough. It's the people who operate the the, the facilities of the school and like do all the groundwork. Yeah, custodians. Yeah, so people who are like cleaning, who are working in, um, who are working in uh, the cafeteria, who are also like driving buses, mm-hmm. all of those sort of like. Um, you could say like, yeah, essential workers, uh, but not teachers. And so they, like some stories, like one of them was getting, said she was getting a pay cut, uh, after like 10 years of working there and, you know, amidst inflation right now, like a pay cut seems unimaginable. One of them was, she said that she is capped at working 30 hours per week. And so she would like to work more hours per week to get benefits and just to like make more money per week. Right. But the school caps her at 30. And I wonder how many other employees like her are capped at some number of hours. Um, and so she has to find a third job in order to uh, you know, make enough money. And so it's interesting because often you hear about like, you know, teachers, uh, well, you hear about how teachers aren't making enough money and you hear about how like the, the wage itself is, is too low. But also, if the employer, you know, cuts back on the number of hours, then you aren't making as much money, even if the wage is higher. And so mm. you usually hear about, like, Lyft and Uber 
being these uh, sort of, um, you know, slightly like, uh, you know, problematic Exploit companies for exploitative for uh, keeping their drivers as temp workers. But if the government is doing that too, by having their, uh, you know, essential workers be like sort of part time, if you will, and, and cutting their hours, where you can't make a living wage, you know, what does that mean? Mm. I see. So, what do you guys take away from it? Did it change the way that you think about how public education should be operated, or did it? Were there any? It, I mean, it raised. It honestly up? raised more questions than it gave answers. Uh, Especially on like like so the unions like demanding things from the, the government. They were demanding I think it was a thirty percent wage increase across the board. But I was really curious as to like how exactly they that is what exactly that demand looks like because there's a lot of employees that don't need a thirty percent wage increase. Right. And there's a lot that might need more than a thirty percent wage increase. So it seems a little bit um like blanket approach, which might right. not quite work. Which so, I need to go ahead. Uh CNN reports that they are requesting a 30% pay raise plus an additional $2 an hour um, and increased employment hours, as you were saying, okay. not limiting people to part-time work. Um, right now, the city is offering a $20 an hour minimum wage, a 23% recurring pay raise, and health care for anybody who works more than 20 hours a week, four hours a day. Mm. So it's very difficult to decide these questions. Um, in, as in a private business, you would have a owner who has a financial stake in making sure the businesses run well. Some employees are worth it, other employees are not. If you go into your boss and you ask for a raise, um, your boss can determine whether that's good for the company or bad for the company and make the decision on that basis. But employees of the government, it's a very different story. Um, how do you determine like the financial value of a teacher? Um, they're like doing very good work, they're doing something that's helping other people. Like, Don't we just want to pay them more? How would you say you make that decision? Is it based on like the quality of education? Is it based on changing financial circumstances? What can you look at to say whether like um, you know what a, a voter's position should be on an event like this? Good question. Um, let's see. So so clarify what you mean by like the voter's position. So like, what say should the voters have in in teacher compensation? So as a government official. Or as a voter who, like, you know, as a taxpayer, you are ultimately paying teacher salaries and, like, all the other taxpayers are paying teacher salaries. Right. And so if the teachers go on strike and say that they would like higher pay, what determines whether, like, what, what the offer from the government should be? Yeah. I mean, at the very minimum, it should be a, a living wage. I think that's, that's the argument, right? Mm -hmm. I know, like, a lot of people uh, that I was talking to, they were like, I can't, like, of course, I can't pay my bills. And so I think that's the baseline, right? Yeah, um, I think living wage is the baseline. Um, I don't know how good of an idea of this idea this is, but another possible solution could be comparing it uh, to private industry, right? So how competitive is a teacher salary, a middle school teacher salary, to a profession that they could maybe uh, enter with similar credentials, right? Mm -hmm. So we're attracting not just like the bottom pool of talent who's being paid the, at the bare minimum, which is a living wage. How do we track the talent that um, that is is not is? Uh, right. If you can't hire enough teachers because you're not paying them enough, right. Obviously, you're hurting the schools and you need to pay more. Um, but if you have a long waiting list, the the NYPD office, you have to sit, wait for several years before you can take the exam to become a cop because mm. becoming a cop is such a desirable job. 
Yeah. And so maybe there you can like, okay, we can pay these people less because there's an oversupply and for not enough demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually an economics practice too, right? So if you have to make teachers indifferent. That was what I was looking for. Indifferent between choosing a uh, career in private industry with similar credentials and government uh, with similar credentials. That's ideal. That's probably super expensive and maybe uh, like more optimistic than, than is like actually possible. But I think that's a start uh, on kind of how you would decide what teachers should be ideally being paid. Mm. Yeah. Does anyone understand like the, the Finland model or the Sweden model? Because there, you know, it's like you have to have a master's degree to be a teacher, right? Like even for elementary school. Wow. So it's kind of that. It's like, you know, good. Do you think that's a good thing? Uh, you guys think, I'll think, I mean. I know for sure they get paid more too. And that's another large incentive for people to go into education. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In those countries. I, I know you were bringing up statistics, Aiden, Nikosh, a week or so ago when we were texting the, about teachers and wages. There, there's a huge debate over how useful education reform is. There are some, Freddie DeBoer is like this famous, inter, internet famous socialist who argues that education reform is just useless and like all these things we've tried to do over the last 20 years have not changed the test scores at all. But then other people say like high school graduation rates are increasing, test scores are increasing just a little bit, like maybe that has something to do with education reform. Yeah. What do you guys think about, um, like, any sort of partial privatization uh, efforts? Charter schools, school choice programs. I think anything Vouchers, where you're, anything like that, yeah. Anything where you're giving students and parents a choice um, yeah. is good for the system. And yeah. I'm not sure why people would be opposed to that. Um, if these schools are open to anyone, like I could even see someone being opposed to private schools because that creates income inequality between people who can pay and who can't. Sure. But things where you can go to a different, possibly better school for free seem fantastic. Yeah, because I know when when um, Betsy DeVos is being nominated as as the Trump administration's education secretary, at least the like the left of media was was up in arms about certain voucher proposals because it's like oh people will just be able to use this to like pay for the kids to go to like religious schools and you know the station defunding religious education therefore we shouldn't have school vouchers um this is like one of the one of the main talking points you'd see in the news and stuff and so i kind of back then i didn't really think too much and i adopted that but as i thought a lot more about it, it's like in my opinion at least especially in education you see a market that has been like incredibly subsidized, right? Not free for, you know, since the 1920s. And, and also has more or less stagnated in, in terms of like a lot of you know, different metrics. I think at least like some sort of free market option would be great. One quick bit of news out of Chicago. Chicago spends just under $30,000 a year per student. Um, that's almost double the national average. Um, only 11% of Black high schoolers and 17% of Hispanic high schoolers could read at grade level in 2021. And 100% of teachers were rated excellent or proficient. How do you have a school system that fails to teach students to their grade level, and yet all of the teachers are being rated excellent or proficient? Wait, is this they couldn't they couldn't read before entering, like by the time they entered grade it's, school? It's certainly an accumulative problem where if you were behind as a young child, then you're going to be behind as a yeah, young child. Yeah, that sounds like it could be more of an issue of like the, the parents not preparing the, the, the kids before they enter school, right? 
kids do come well, from different yeah. backgrounds. But if you're in school for 10 years and the school system as a whole is giving itself A-plus yeah. grades on its yeah. support card but is not teaching you to read, I think we have to point Wait, sorry, so yeah. the statistic yeah. on, that you just read, was that that was by the time they graduated high school or that was – I think they're just measuring this, them in their grades this so is, in real time. Could right. read at grade level. Oh, oh, at any oh. Grade level. At, at, at any grade level. Always yeah, subpar. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the bigger questions I thought about a lot. Is like, to what degree is school responsible for oh. a, a significant amount of the uh, education that parents currently provide? You know, or or that at least like higher socioeconomic parents are able to provide. Right. Uh, status in general, like, is that something for kids who might not have that like the sort of privilege to learn certain things from their parents? Um, should school be stepping in and and fulfilling that role? Because that I think is like one of the biggest things that you would need to combat educational inequality. Is like you know all the stuff that like you learn from your dad growing up. Uh-huh. Like, kid who doesn't have a dad like like yours with like exposure to you know certain things in the professional world, maybe isn't like a great reader, you know, dropped out of school early. Like, is that just like fine to have that sort of inequality, or should the school be stepping in and providing that? that sort of an education to the kid with the you know, less educated dad? I think that, again, in, I would, in an ideal world, yes, they would step in and provide that extra value. But I, I don't think it's feasible. Just with, like, currently, if, if teachers are, are being underpaid and uh, it's difficult to actually produce like results, like to, to bring students to, to reading at grade level, yeah. I think we need to like reach that point first, right? So let's yeah. focus our our attention on how do we just provide, uh, I guess, not the bare minimum, but a basic level of education for each student. Let's yeah. get them to read at grade level. And then if they, if they need to expand from there, I think that that would be like, like an outside option. I think currently the issue is education standards in the U.S. are not even able to meet like the, the bare minimum. Yeah, Another interesting yeah, trade-off yeah. on this paying teachers more mm-hmm. issue is that you know, economics would suggest that if you pay teachers more, then you don't, you aren't able to hire as many teachers, right? Sure. Um, and a big problem in uh, the teachers that I talked to at the at the rally we're, we're speaking of is that they have too many students in the classroom, that they have like 40, 45, sometimes more students per classroom you have to teach. Yeah. It's too many to... All good, all good. Uh, <laughs> Too many to, uh, yeah. So if you if you pay teachers more, mm-hmm. then you don't have as, as much money to uh, for as many teachers, right? So then you have more students per classroom, and yeah. Yeah. so it's like. But then it's. I mean, that that's that that is if like the amount of money you can throw at education is fixed. So the so the other argument is like, why don't we just pump more money, just print more money, and give it to uh, schools, right? Mm. But of course, printing money sure. is a problem in and of itself. Making schools oh, better. What a great and- segue. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of printing money. All right. So uh, I know Akash and I have already spoken about this. Have we spoken about this? Are you guys aware of the, like, the Balaji going off the rails on Twitter? We, we talked about this a little bit. I've looked into it a little, a little bit more. Um, Do you know who Balaji is? Yeah. yeah. Aiden knows the like, general kind of point on Twitter is this is this crazy guy who's predicting that Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars. Like, this guy's insane. Why would anyone ever think that? Um, that prediction is the the sum of maybe like eight premises. I think the first two or three of which are uh, are pretty much common knowledge, like validated by Forbes and, and 
you know, major uh, media outlets, or maybe not common knowledge, but a little bit more popular. And then he makes a few connections that are a little bit more stretched. So I want to lay it out briefly and, and hear what both you, Aiden, and Adam think. Aiden? So, uh, so the first, <laughs> the first basic, uh, you know, part of this is that in COVID, you had all these deposits floating around from the stimulus checks. Uh, you know, one person's stimulus check becomes another person's uh, revenue, which eventually goes into a bank somewhere and becomes a deposit. And so you had this huge influx of deposits in banks, um, unseen in the wild because of all this cash that was pumped into the economy. Now, like, what do banks usually do with their money? Uh, they they loan it out to other people, but because Everyone else was getting stimulus checks. There was a you know decreased demand for loans, so the bank couldn't just loan out all those new deposits. Uh, so they put them somewhere. They put them in uh, T-bills, you know, bonds, like safest option. Uh, the, the Fed interest rate forecasts for the next five years were like 0.01 percent. Um, banks binged on bonds. So, you know, we had to sum that up. Then Fed hiked interest rates like no one's ever seen from 0.1 percent to 4.75 percent in like a year and a half. And all those bond uh, portfolios that the banks had, you know, created with the extra cash that they had, uh, you know, ha it didn't didn't have in value, but dropped in value super super significantly. And so, uh, a, a very large percentage of banks now are, if you, uh, you know, calculate their balance sheet according to unrealized losses, insolvent. Right? They, if if there were to be, you know, a bank run, depositors would come and say like, hey, you know, can I have my money? They would not be able to cover it. They cannot liquidate. The liquidated value of their assets does not cover the sum total of their liabilities or deposits. And so, and this is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, right? Like the like VCs on Twitter and other people kind of contributed to a little bit of bank run and they weren't able to cover that at all. And, and Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And so the, 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 the idea here is that Silicon Valley Bank basically was in the same position that every other major bank and, and commercial and local bank is in America that binged on bonds now. They're all insolvent. It's just a question of how many of them, uh, you know, have some sort of fear, uncertainty, doubt uh, phenomenon where there's a bank run, and Balaji is predicting there will be a lot of those. And then once those do happen, uh, you know, what can the Fed do? They can either just insure deposits up to 250k, which is you know FDIC insurance, um, and then let the rest of the depositors, i.e., you know, like businesses with payrolls, collapse, or they can, as they did in the case of Silicon Valley prop up all the deposits to prevent companies from collapsing or deposit their money, then they'll have to print money uh, to prop up those deposits. And he's predicting that that's what they'll do. And there will be like, you know, a very significant amount of inflation in the next uh, three to six months due to banks collapsing, money being, banks collapsing, money being printed to cover the deposits. What do you all think about that? So first thing, do you think the Fed will let it happen? Will the Fed actually backstop all these banks? In the case of SVB, they backstopped SVB. They covered all deposits, any size. If you have money in SVB, you get it out. Sure. Um, they didn't have to. Is that, they didn't have to. They only had to deposit, insure deposits up to 250K. So like any business, and there were a bunch of startups that had their, their you know, huge accounts in SVB and were like not going to be able to make payroll the next week. And so those companies were all going to collapse. And then the Fed stepped in and said, you know what, never mind. Like, you're not going to collapse. Don't worry. We'll print all this money so that way you can like, pay your workers next week. Okay. Well, so that, that's – I do know that there is an insurance fund that every bank contributes to as part of being a bank. You have to contribute to an insurance fund. And the money that's pulled in that insurance fund was used to bail out – Is this different SVB. than FDIC? 
This is FTIC. This is, That's FTIC. This is FTIC. Yeah. But FTIC but, only insures up to 250k for each account. So are, are we sure that they printed money to, to cover? So the in the long term, it's not going to be a cost to the taxpayer. Um, they're going to increase the insurance premiums, and it's just going to retroactively cover this stuff. But in the short term, they did need to print some money in order to make this happen. Got it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So I think on the inflation question, if SVB had gone down, there would be a lot less money in the world. Like right now, when a bank, when money goes into a bank, the money basically doubles. So one person thinks they have that money. My money is sitting in a bank. I gave them a million dollars. Topples or and then money multiplier. The bank just loaned out, loaned out, loaned out. Loans it out to somebody else who goes around spending it. So there are two people who are like, this is my dollar and it's only one dollar. Yeah. And so if a uh, bank had gone down, the amount of money in the economy would go down significantly. Yeah. And that would be deflationary. And so yeah. backstopping a bank, I don't think is significantly inflationary. Well, one bank, of course. But uh, like it, it's already been announced that there's uh, been like, a, like, of course, this is the, the limit. There's like a $2 trillion, um, you know, $2 trillion max backstopping reserve plan. Mm-hmm. And this has been announced like mainstream media outlets. Um, Two trillion? Two trillion is like the upper bound, currently. and it will go up if it we was, ever it, hit two trillion. Yeah, uh, it was initially like you know fifty <laughs> billion, and then three hundred billion, and then now two trillion. Um, uh, for reference, like the total estimated cost of the two thousand eight bailouts was like five hundred sixty billion, something like that. Um, so, like, I'm not not saying that they definitely will, but certainly the uh, sort of like logistical uh, prerequisites. Have beginning are beginning to form for those sorts of backstops to occur on a serial basis, and the willingness to save the banks almost prevents you from needing to save them. If you know that you are backstopped, then you don't need to pull your money out of SVB. All of a sudden, they had fifty billion dollars worth of withdrawals in one day. Very few banks can survive something like that. If you say that the money is safe, the government will guarantee it. You don't need to go pull your money out then all of a sudden this bank run effect, I think, slows down. So did the government come out saying this? they had this $2 trillion cap after SVB collapsed? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess so your point would be that that, that is like, that is, that is a financial, you know, armament, i.e. like, we, you know, we have a bunch of nukes because we don't have to use them. And because we have all them, we're probably not going to have to use them. Right. It's like the same in, thing in the with exact $2 trillion. Dollars. Like we have this. Like, there used to be, like, if you go back to the 1920s, there would be hundreds of banks failing every year. And that's why the FDIC was created so that, okay, I know my money is safe in the bank. I know that I don't need to go withdraw it. And that makes it easier to be a bank and to do business as a bank. Mm. Got it. So your, your general opinion on this is that like that, the institution of this two trillion dollar thing is going like most likely going to quell any sort of fear that would lead to bank runs, that would lead to banks having to you know face the fact that they're insolvent. Roughly, yeah, and yeah, because this really is just like a prediction on depositor psychology, basically that you that you have yeah. to make. There's a separate question of whether we're headed for a recession, um, and I, 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 there's a good phrasing of this that if you if you think that you're richer than you are. If, you th- if the year is 2008 and you think you have a million dollars worth of land value and it turns out there's nobody who's willing to pay that if they don't have access to these super cheap mortgages that they're inevitably going to default on, then you don't have a million dollars worth of land value. You have half that. And when the market finally figures that out and you have to mark down all of your assets, it feels like this big problem. If you are a big tech company and you have been getting a ton of VC money and you've been hiring people uh, hand over fist and then all of a sudden... 
uh, you know, your pandemic boon in revenues slows down and you have to fire a bunch of people, then the economy looks really bad and you just like have less money than you thought you did. Yeah. And so I could totally see like the next year or two being very shaky, a lot of companies like firing people and like not seeing a ton of stock market growth, even seeing a stock market crash without having some doomsday scenario where the dollar is useless and Bitcoin is worth a million dollars. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, that's like another logical jump, which is that because all of this could be true and even the whole bank run stuff could be true, but people could exit to like gold. You know, like yeah, does crypto gold look or, like or the land. savior right now? Didn't crypto fail before all this stuff started happening? Totally. And that's, that's just like, that's another jump that he's made that you could, you know, you could, you could argue over just that jump for, for, you know, hours and days. What, what even what pushed people what people what pushed people to the to doubt SVB in the first place? They were raising so they they had like liquidity concerns, which is like so not only are they insolvent when you when you add up all their assets and liabilities, but they they literally did not have enough liquid money to like to even uh, pay depositors back on like a regular withdrawal basis. So, so, so they were uh, they so, issued they were like issuing a bunch of a bunch of stock and trying to raise like one point six billion dollars to cover their liquidity concerns, and that's what sparked the everyone freaking out. So there are liquidity concerns, but no bank has enough money to cover all of its deposits in one day. They all take their deposits and they loan them out. Oh, of course, I, I, no, I, I was talking about just like the, the like regular daily deposit like right. withdrawal. But you said every card. every bank sort of in the same scenario. Another key thing is that Peter Thiel's founders fund told all of its founders, you should withdraw your money from Silicon Valley Bank. And then they told all of their founder friends and every VC found out. And that's how $50 billion was withdrawn in one day. Okay. And if you don't have that bank run, you probably don't have the collapse of SVB. Okay. Yeah. But a solvent bank, um, which is like, i.e. any bank before interest rates got hiked like crazy, uh, or any bank that didn't bid on bonds, would be able to cover even even that sort of bank run, although they, it might take what them if, a little bit to, to liquidate their What if they their had their money assets. tied up in mortgages? What if they had like taken all these deposits and give them, given them out on 30-year mortgages and were like, yes, we have valuable assets, but we're not going to have the actual money you, back you in can, hand for 30 years? You can sell mortgages to, you know, like another financial institution. Um, right, so, right. so you can, you can like, of course, you okay. can't like liquidate the mortgage itself, but you can liquidate the asset by selling the mortgage to someone else and theoretically cover, you know, the, the depositors yeah. that way. So I think there is a difference between this being illiquid and insolvent. Whether SVB and you, you think they were insolvent, not just illiquid? No, they were. They were. They were they insolvent. Were insolvent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we should be blaming the Fed and Peter Thiel. Is what? <laughs> we no, need the a Fed, scapegoat. The Fed is the scapegoat. Got to go in three minutes. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Okay, well, what I don't understand about this whole process or this theory of, of uh, apologies is that so, – so the idea here is that banks have bought bonds assuming that interest rates at this time would be still at 0.1%. Pretty low, yeah. Pretty low, Because right? the Fed's projections that they released right. in 2020 were like – they, they project interest rate, you know, five years out, 10 years out. Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind, of course, it's not the Fed's, like, responsibility to give investment advice yeah. necessarily, or at least that's not their first uh, line of duty. Right. But I think a lot of people have raised an objection, which, which is true. But their projection that was that it was going to stay low for, you know, indefinite future. Okay, so, so if, even if it's they not their first line of, yeah, Well, even if it's not their first line of duty, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that the Fed wouldn't think about the possibility that, okay, we had released a projection that our interest rates are at 0.1%. Uh, a lot of financial institutions would have looked at this data and made decisions off that. If we hike them to 4% now, 
what are the repercussions? They, they didn't see thirteen percent inflation. Yeah, when, they had no choice because they, they, they hiked their interest rates, you know, uh, expressly to combat inflation, and they it was like they had they, they had to do that. It was like it was basically screw everyone who bought bonds or screw everyone who holds dollars. And honestly, if the year is 2020, you see trillions of dollars in stimulus and super loose monetary policy, and you don't think that inflation is possible, I don't know. Should you really be like a bank that's not thinking about that risk? So are you, would you say right. that you're um, skeptical of the Fed's competence like in this? Uh, no, I think the Fed should have been raising interest rates. They should be backstopping these banks. Sure, yeah, I, I think those. the banks did a terrible job managing the risk. If you buy a bunch of interest low interest rate bonds in an environment that is probably inflationary, probably going to require rate hikes. Right, right. And you end up getting screwed. That's just how it fucked. works. Yeah. 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 And, and it's this positive feedback loop too, right? Because if you if you're I mean now there's this is like a critical theory now, but like like if you're a bank that uh, takes risky investments like this, buying low interest bonds in well, an that's supposed to not be risky, by the way. That's supposed to be like the safest thing. Like you know, conventional wisdom would say Well yeah. uh, that's well, supposed to be like the safest thing you possibly can The government would money. love you to think that, that yeah. this is the safest financial instrument in the world and that it, partly because we will go to all lengths to print money to make sure that this is the most safest instrument in the world, which yeah. I don't think is a nice like self-fulfilling prophecy. I can see that's kind of why Balaji thinks that the dollar is screwed up. Like, if yeah. you had a financial crisis, the U.S. government uh, would just step in to try to fix it by destroying the dollar. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I see. No, Okay. Okay. No, I, I see what you're getting at. Um, no, I was just thinking of the fact that if you're a bank and you make like a poor investment decision like this, yeah. Okay, let's just say you, you put your money in, in a in security like a bond that you should assume is going to have interest rates uh, lifted because of inflationary environments, then you have no incentive now to take a different course of action the next time around this happens because you're being backstopped by the government. Thankfully, all the SVB investors yeah. lost all of their money. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, the one. thing. All the yeah. shareholders got fucked. It was but just like, what the, happens if like JP Morgan has this problem? Too big to fail. Exactly. Like, Too big to fail, right? Be, they will be, so they why will would JP Morgan do anything else the next time around? Or bank America, Because the people who work there don't want to lose their jobs, and the people who own JP Morgan don't want to have their stock go to zero. As, even well, though the only people you're saving are the depositors. Do you, do you see JP Morgan's stock ever going to zero? <laughs> like, it, <laughs> um, I just feel like that Bearst earns went to zero like yes in, in some okay, crazy okay, scenario yeah. where the economy is falling <laughs> sure, apart and sure. like JP Morgan is insolvent the possibility that they could go to zero is like probably not likely right. but possible okay uh, fair enough fair you enough, ever yeah. see like tension but you guys ever see those people wearing like Lehman Brothers risk <laughs> management department <laughs> shirts in the gym I love those <laughs> I've seen like yeah, it's so funny like, it's really are you so, one of those uh, people? No, I don't wear that, but I'll see kids who wear that. This is like a, you know. I think we I, find a way. It's a finance joke. <laughs> Triple Link hoodie, the USC uh, real estate agency. Oh, I that's, that was Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Oliver. Thanks for having me. This uh, is awesome. And yeah. to talk about inflation yeah. and biology. We'd love to have you uh, on the show more often, so let us know when you, when you pull through. I'll be back LA. in five weeks. You're graduating, right? I am. Are you graduating? No, next December. When are you? Nice. You're going to be here for graduation. That's what I was going to ask you yesterday. You can pause this now. All righty, folks. Well, that wraps up this episode of Junto Talks. Yeah, thanks for coming, guys. Always fun. We'll see you next week. Yeah, maybe some uh, new guest celebrities next time around. <laughs> see you. Bye.